0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. You can follow along in your worship folder on the screen behind me or on page 968 in the Pew Bible. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully,
1: Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Get this straight here for me. Uh, Those of you who who weren't able to join us this weekend, uh, Friday night and Saturday, uh, wow, that was great. Uh, And thanks uh, be to God for technology. Most of the time, uh, I realize this thing is having a mind of its own today, but Uh, we did record all the sessions. They'll be on the app under seminars, so you can go there and listen to them, which I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to do. Uh, They're fantastic. They'll challenge you. Uh, They'll get you thinking big picture. Um, uh, Yeah, it was just great. So as as we come to uh, the beginning of the sacrificial mission offering today, but also the season, if you will, uh, we wanted to take a Sunday and talk about uh, giving, talk about, as we've titled it, joyful generosity. Uh, We have a couple of Sundays until we enter into the Advent season. Uh, As Drew mentioned last week, we're going to go into Revelation, uh, which screams Christmas, right? (laughs) So, uh, but he'll be preaching through that, and so I can't wait to hear what, uh, what he has to say. But, you know, I, the introduction there says, do we really need to talk about this? And the short answer is is yes. The little longer answer, which I'll give you, is uh, this: maybe the second time in eight years we've ever taken a Sunday or we've ever had a sermon specifically on giving uh, or addressing giving, uh, trying to understand giving and the gospel's relationship to it. But for a couple of reasons, first, our, our elders have discussed over the last couple of months, we don't talk much about giving or budgets or stewardship really at Redeemer and the truth is we've never had to um, some churches do what they call annual stewardship seasons others will have those uh, giving unit uh, boxes of envelopes with your number on it and, you know you put your your gift or your tithe in there and that's how churches keep up with that and identify uh, what's come in and of course what hasn't come in uh, but Redeemer has always been extremely blessed by the generosity of those who attend both both members and those who aren't members, uh, and I attribute that, I really do attribute that to what I believe is a compelling vision that has consistently been put forward, a consistent trumpeting of the gospel that's consistently been done, and I think that resonates with people. I think it draws people. I think it causes them to want to see that vision flourish, and the, 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 the church continue to grow in our city, and so they give, and as you know, the church is a nonprofit organization, meaning Uh, We exist completely and solely and utterly on the gifts and contributions of our congregation. Over the last two years, our elders have made some decisions to hire staff. We've planted a church. We've been the the catalyst in this ministry called Heart for Winter Haven to try to reach out to love our city uh, in 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 an ecumenical way, to invest in ministry here, but also in places like Nicaragua and France. Uh, Those decisions have resulted in the need to spend money to spur growth and invest in the vision of Redeemer as we look to the future. And a few weeks back, uh, many of you received a letter from Drew, our senior pastor, outlining some of what I've just said and asking you to consider helping us to meet our budget shortfall for the year. And to those of you who've given to that end, thank you. It's a tremendous encouragement uh, that you've done that. If you have not, please consider doing that, because all that's a reason for a part of today's uh, emphasis. We want to continue to communicate better, not only about how well we're doing it, stewarding what God has given to us through you, but also what we need to continue to do that work, to continue to carry out the vision that we believe He's called us to. So, all that being said, uh, today and carrying over until the end of the year, we're going to take up our sacrificial mission offering. And as Brandon alluded to, we just finished, or we're in the middle of our Gospel in the World weekend, and this offering is part of that weekend. Uh, It's our second year of doing it this way, and it's intended to become the way we fund what are our non-church planting partnerships, both here in Winter Haven and around uh, the world. And so our request is you'd consider giving to this over and above your regular pattern of giving to Redeemer. But today is also an opportunity. The offering, this text, is an opportunity. Look at the outline, if you would, there, uh, that you were given in your worship folder on the insert. And you'll see where we're going in light of this passage uh, that Susan read. Uh, Although I must be honest and say that the call to worship, I snuck in because it's really part of the sermon text, but the only way I could get it into the worship folder was to make it the call to worship. So uh, I snuck it in there, so I'm going to refer to that as well. But as we think about this offering, as we think about the year's end, as we think about giving, I want you to see three things uh, from not just this passage, but uh, from the call to worship. First, the grace of giving. Second, the hilarity of giving, which we'll get to. And yes, that, that, that's referring to the word hilarious. Uh, hopefully, I'll make more sense of that in a minute for you. Uh, what's the connection between joy and giving? That's the bottom line that I want to talk about and highlight. And then thirdly, the life of giving. How does that work itself out into our life? But the summary statement, or as Drew likes to call it, the doctrine of the sermon, Right? The summary teaching would be, our joyful generosity is only possible through experiencing Jesus' gracious generosity to us. Our joyful generosity will only come as we experience Jesus' gracious generosity. Okay? So first, uh, the grace of giving. Let's let's look there. Look at the call to worship in uh, your worship folder from 2 Corinthians 8, uh, where Paul says... I'm just going to read a portion of it. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the favor that what she read said favor. But in the Greek, the word is really the grace begging us for the grace, the opportunity to participate in the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. The word grace occurs several times, verse 1, verse 4, verse 7, verse 9. What's Paul talking about? And a little bit of, of background uh, with this text, uh, what he's what he's referring to. There was a famine in Jerusalem, and so the call went out to all the churches in the Roman world to help uh bring money in to get food for the churches and the Christians in Jerusalem who were starving. Uh, So Paul, as he's writing this second letter to the church at Corinth, he does a bit of fundraising. Right? He's in the middle of this letter, and he, he moves into fundraising mode. Corinth was a pretty wealthy city. It had a lot of commerce, had a lot of culture, but also had a lot of material resources, not only in the city but among the Christians there. And what's absolutely astounding, though, is how Paul does his fundraising appeal both in what he does not say, but especially in what he does say. Uh, And so we can learn a lot by looking at those two things. Now, what would give the Macedonian churches the ability to, look at at verse 2. When did they give, according to Paul? He says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, how in the world does that happen? Right? How, did the, how does their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty go together to produce generosity? What gives them the ability to do that? Well, Paul's answer is grace. Grace from God produced the grace of giving to others. Grace from God, he says, produced their ability to give to other people. Paul says they gave even to their own hurt. They gave even to their own hurt. Why? Because they wanted to. He says they wanted to so badly, they were begging. If you look down there at verse uh, 4, they were begging, he says. Now, why would these Christians beg for the opportunity to help with famine relief? Well, the answer is because they saw it as a grace to be able to participate in the first place. So, compare that with the Corinthians now, as Paul's writing to them, as he's trying to win them and convince them of the need to be generous and give to the famine relief also. If you read his letters to this church, you'll see they were a pretty talented bunch of people. He refers to a lot of this in the first letter to the Corinthians, but also here. They were gifted in such things as faith, tongues, healing, words of prophecy, and many other things. But at the beginning of verse 7, he actually says, They excelled. As you excel in everything, and then I picked it up for you there in the call to worship. He says, he lists them off, and then he says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. In other words, not enough for you to excel in faith, words of prophecy, knowledge, all the various things that the Corinthians were able to do, apparently. He says, excel in the grace of giving. If you really want to get there in terms of faithfulness, excel in this grace as well. They, they weren't the most generous and so Paul puts a great opportunity in front of them to put that into practice, and here's the amazing part. How does he motivate them? How, how, how have you in the past experienced motivational pleas to give to various causes, uh, whether in the church or other nonprofit organizations? Uh, some, some organizations like to use uh, really sad pictures of children come across your TV screen to motivate you to give. Or some of my favorites are the SPCA and other, you know, animal things. They, 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 they take the pictures of the most pitiful looking animals, and the dogs, at least the good looking dogs. I'm always kind of, man, I want to go get one of those. The ugly dogs, you can have those, but it's all guilt, isn't it? It's all guilt in the way that they motivate them. So how does Paul do it? Well, notice what he doesn't say. He He's certainly within his rights as an apostle of Jesus Christ to say, listen, guys, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I have authority that's been vested in me by the church. And as an apostle, I now command you to give to help your fellow Christians in Jerusalem. If you don't give, then I'll consider you insubordinate and church discipline will follow. Does he say that? No. He's certainly within his rights to do that, but he doesn't say that. Nor does he say, listen, guys, don't you want to be blessed? Don't you want to receive the blessing? If you don't give, God won't bless you. And if you're stingy to God, God will be stingy to you. Motivation by guilt, motivation by fear. What does he do? How does he motivate them? Well, look closely at verses 8 and 9 there in the call to worship or uh, from 2 Corinthians or uh, just from your, from your Bible or that you're following along, what does he say? Paul says, the only way to excel in the grace of giving is to know grace. The only way to excel in the grace of giving is to know grace. And he points them and us to the gospel. For non-Christians, uh, if you consider yourself... Not a Christian, new to Christianity, wondering what all of this means. The good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ lived a perfect life of obedience all the way to the cross. Where where he took our record of stinginess and self-centeredness on himself. And in exchange for that, he now gives us his record of righteousness. But not only that, in doing that, the gospel says he defeated sin and death. And then ascending back to heaven, he is now ruling over heaven and earth until all his enemies are put under his feet. Or as we were reminded this weekend, he's won. He's won. And it's funny. I'm the same way. When, when, he, when I hear he's won, that's my reaction. Now when the Seminoles win, that's my reaction. Some of you have never seen me ever do anything like that in your entire life. But go with me, watch the Seminoles play. Uh, Or watch other people play uh, that I support and and enjoy. But when I hear Jesus is one, hmm, awesome, great, right? But that's not the gospel. The gospel is he's one. And when you really know, when you've tasted, when you've in the bottom of your heart experienced the reality of Jesus Christ himself, that is, Paul says, the grace of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ when you experience him giving his wealth away to you, spiritually impoverishing himself so that you might become spiritually rich. The grace of his radical generosity for you, for you, it changes you. That's what Paul says. That's his point. A person who has been taken by grace, who's tasted the grace of God for them in Jesus says, not They don't ask the question. It doesn't change them to ask the question, how much must I give? Tell me how much must I give? They ask the question, how much can I give? How much do I get to give? The example, classic example from the New Testament is Zacchaeus, right? The the super wealthy tax collector hated by his community who went from becoming richer and richer at the expense of those around him to a person who served others, at the expense of his riches. Does that sound familiar? Serving others at the expense of their riches? That was Jesus. See, when you meet Jesus, you become like Jesus. Uh, Paul's argument is that the gospel can motivate you to generosity in a way that nothing else can. In a very real way, he says, listen, verse 8, he says, in a very real way, your generous giving proves the reality of the love you have for God. That's what he says to them. I say this not as a command to you, but so that you'll prove the earnestness of others, by the earnestness of others, that your love also is uh, genuine. You with me? Does that make sense? Well, Drew's with me. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. But not only is giving a grace, giving is a joy. So let me move to the hilarity of giving. Because when you see Christ's sacrificial love for you, that he gave up everything so that you could inherit the riches of heaven, it helps you develop a healthy attitude toward material possessions. But it also helps us, you helps me, helps us become people who are both generous, but not only generous, joyful in our generosity. And so... Look at the text that's printed on the insert that, that Susan read. So move away from the call to worship and, and look at the insert, because I want to focus on verses 6 through 8 for a minute. And I want to read 7 and 8, okay? I'm just going to read 7 and 8. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. Generosity and joy always, always go together. Giving reluctantly or under compulsion isn't generosity. It's not giving that's born from grace. And it certainly isn't joy-filled or fun. There's no cheery spirit. I mean, how many people, when they pick up the packet, the envelope from the CPA's office, are cheerful? Only if one thing... They get to the bottom, and they see that the government owes them money. Oh, boy, then you're cheerful. But most of the time, when you have to pay taxes, that's called compulsory giving. God loves cheerful givers. That's why we're not taxing you. Well, at least we hope we're not taxing you, right? Compulsory giving, when you write your tax bill, when you write your mortgage payment, the bills you have on a monthly basis, most of the time, that's that's compulsory giving. It's not cheerful giving. We can't prosecute you or garnish your wages or something like that if you don't give to the church. It's voluntary. That is, you have to want to do it. And here we learn God doesn't love giving from a place of compulsion, giving because you're made to or because you feel like you have to in order to earn his favor. No, he, he doesn't. He doesn't love that. He doesn't love stingy, reluctant giving either. Giving through gritted teeth. Okay, here's my sacrificial mission offering. He doesn't like that either. Paul says he loves a cheerful giver. And this is why I called it the hilarity of giving, because the Greek word is hilarion. And if it sounds familiar, that's because it's how we get our word hilarious. Now, one definition of hilarious that I looked up is boisterously merry. merry like Merry Christmas, boisterously merry. Isn't that great? It's the picture of somebody having a great time, having fun, and that's the kind of joy, that's the kind of giving joy produces. I mean, why are people not rushing in boisterous merriment to drop their checks into that box? Paul says, if you've experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ, it produces a joyful giving. Now, what's the connection between giving as one has decided in their heart, verse 7, and that act being a cheerful one? Paul says, each one must, has deci- must give as he's decided in his heart because God loves a cheerful giver. Well, what's going on in that person's heart? Look at verse 8. Paul tells us. What's going on in their heart is, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, the word is contentment, all contentment, In all things, at all times, you may abound. And here it is, the way I would summarize that. An abundance of grace produces an abundance of contentment, which results in an abundance of generosity. An abundance of grace produces an abundance of contentment, which results in an abundance of generosity. See, a person, a Christian rather, is a person who's had an abundance of God's grace poured into their heart in in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the many byproducts of that is joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, according to Paul in Galatians uh, chapter 5. The joy of the Lord living in us is our strength, according to Nehemiah. And Paul seems to think that the person who's experienced and come to believe the gospel in the deepest part of their heart will, in fact, not only give generously, but do it full of hilarious joy. I know that sounds weird. I mean, when's the last time you just somebody was just bellyache laughing as they gave their envelope to the church? Isn't this so much fun? I mean, people who are like that, we find weird. You know, like Bob Allums gets up here, and he's laughing and talking about how much fun it is to give to the work of God, and we're kind of like, that guy's weird. <laughs> and aside from Bob's weirdness, which he is weird, But he's full of joy. And I would submit to you, the reason he's full of joy is because he's had the grace of God poured in his heart in Jesus Christ. He knows the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Jesus made himself poor so that Bob might become rich. What a testimony. What a witness. Okay, so lastly, having looked at at how the ability to give is a grace. uh, And then joy produced by the gospel fills our hearts so that we can be excited to give, right? Let's look at what a life of giving looks like. Well, why should giving by definition be generous? Or I probably should have said, why should giving by definition be sacrificial? Uh, and what does that life look like? Well, when you get your child French fries at McDonald's and you know you hand them to them and you're driving off, a few minutes go by and you say to the child, hey, can I get a couple of those? What do they usually say to you? Well, this is what mine say. Yours may not. No. Those are mine. You gave them to me. I mean, isn't that great? Now, what if somebody came to you and said, uh, I'd like to give you this five-bedroom house uh, on Lake Eloise completely free, but I just would like one of the rooms to live in. I won't bother you. You'll never see me. I just, you know, come and go. I'll be quiet. I'll keep to myself. What's your response probably going to be? No. It's my house. You gave it to me. Right? Now, the person who gave you the house, or better, closer to home, my response when my child says, no. Those are mine. You gave them to me. Are you kidding? (laughs) Are, Are you serious? Let's rewind time for 10 minutes. Who pulled out? the three dollars, uh, handed it to the uh, cashier, and they handed me back the French fries. Who, who did that? Well, not me. Yeah, I did. So if I ask for, oh, say, 10% of the fries in the container, <laughs> your response probably ought to not be, no, they're mine. And I say all that jokingly, but but that's often what we do when God asks us, hey, just just a little bit, just a portion. Paul asked the Corinthians in his first letter, what did you have, what do you have rather, what do you have that you did not receive? Man, what a question. What do you have that you did not receive? If anything you have, any monetary, any material wealth, isn't seen as a gift from God, then you'll not heed his asking of you to give generously to the work of his kingdom. Understanding the riches we have already received in Christ, it not only liberates us from excessive concern over our wealth or over our time or our talents, but it, but it motivates us to invest them in the eternal kingdom of God. Think about something you are currently investing in that there's no question in your mind you're getting a good deal on your investment. For many of you, it might be college tuition. Some of you, may, you may doubt at times you're getting a good investment on your college tuition. But let's just, in general, be positive. Say, you write that check unconditionally knowing my kid is getting a good education. It's going to help them get this job and the career path that they want to take. There's no question in your mind. Why is it sometimes we have to pull teeth and beg and plead for people to give to the kingdom of God that they question whether that's a good investment? In the Old Testament, you know this. The Old Testament, the principle is the tithe. It's 10%. That's what God asks for. That's the expectation. That defines the act of giving in the New Testament, what's the principle? The gospel. At least the tithe is assumed or, or, or expected in a way, but now Jesus says what defines giving is the gospel. So look at the assurance of pardon. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Brandon read it a few minutes ago for us, but the gospel is defined by self-giving, sacrificial love. Walk in love In the same way that Christ loved us and gave himself for us, how did he give himself for us as an offering, as a sacrifice to God? Jesus didn't give a tenth of himself to save you. He gave all of himself to save you. And walking in love means that you and I will give, we'll give ourself, we'll give our stuff, we'll give our time as a sacrifice. It's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive because when you give, you're imitating God. You're acting like God has acted in saving you. And last week, we were reminded the Christian life is a call to suffer. It's a call to head straight toward opportunities and situations where the, the, the theme might be give up, give away, give something, right? So my, my question is, where's the cross God is calling you to take up with regard to your money? What sacrifice is he calling you to make such that you'd be giving up or giving away that would cost you I mentioned the the sacrificial mission offering earlier. It's an opportunity for us to give, but give to the extent that it might mean we go without something so that our ministry partners can be blessed. And that's because true generosity is costly. Let me read to you from Jonathan Edwards, who's a pastor in Massachusetts uh, 400-so years ago, 300-so years ago. He says this, We, in many cases, may, by the rule of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we can't without suffering, Ourselves, If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities are much greater than ours, and we see that they are not likely to be relieved, we should be willing to suffer with them and to take part of their burden upon ourselves. Or else, how is that role fulfilled of bearing one another's burdens? He says, if we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but only when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear uh, our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all. Paul says at the end of the uh, passage in your worship folder on the insert, and where I want to end, he says, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's an amazing statement. Look at the results. Paul says, will come because of the generosity of the Corinthians. He says, their enrichment is so that they can be generous. He says, real, physical, tangible needs will be met through their giving. Right? The hungry in Jerusalem will be fed. People who are starving will be satisfied. But he also says that thanksgivings and glory and honor will be given to God. And in the same way, I would say to you, sometimes our gifts go to physical needs, such as Heart for Winter Haven's efforts to collaborately combat the food insecurity problem in our city Uh, or life choices, ultrasounds and diapers. Part of the mission offering will go to those partnerships, but we also believe our generosity results in more glory to God. God receives gratitude as a result of your giving. There are individuals and families who are giving thanks to God precisely because of your generosity. Hear me. There are individuals and families in this town giving thanks to God because you have been generous. If that does not motivate you, encourage you, inspire you, make you want to, in boisterous merriment, come running up here to fill up the box, I don't know what will. It's incredible that Paul says that. Someone unemployed going through a Jobs for Life class, they graduate, they're interviewed, they're hired by a local company, God gets gratitude for that. And your generosity made that possible. A woman who's scared because she got an abortion last week and finds herself in Life Choice's Invitation to Healing program, God gets gratitude for that, and that's possible because of your generosity. So how do you get there? How do you become a person who gives not in order to receive, but gives for its own sake? Well, Jonathan Edwards, again, he said this, human beings will only be drawn out of themselves into unselfish acts of service to others when they see God as supremely beautiful So I would ask you as I finish, do you you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know his grace, the one rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake, became as poor, as the old hymn writer says, so that we might walk in love? And so as you've generously received, would you generously give? Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you for the ways in which uh, you have given to us. Uh, And we pray that by your spirit, even now, Lord Jesus, you would make us generous as we consider your generosity to us. Change us, we pray. Change our hearts. Holy Spirit, as we heard this weekend several times, our prayer is simple. Make us like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So as you go, um, receive this benediction. It's a reminder as you go, God goes with you. Uh, It's also a reminder as you go, keep that song echoing in your heart. Uh, Whatever you face uh, and whatever's asked of you, uh, he's able. He's able to make all grace abound to you in every way so that having all contentment in all things, you may abound in every good work. That's good news. Also receive these words as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.